prayer then and look into God's word. Our Father, we're thankful for the opportunity again to open your word. We ask as we look at these things that we might have a keener appreciation for your word and how you put it together and uh, how we are able to understand a little bit more about who your son Jesus Christ is in his earthly life. And we would thank you for this then. Amen. Hey, um, I just remembered something. I talked to Della this week for quite a while. Um, if any of you have extra time, she really appreciates a call. Or maybe you're sending out Christmas cards, don't forget to send her one. Um, I think she'd really look forward to seeing that. Okay. Everybody got that? Good. Okay. Um, the importance of history. The importance of history. It's maybe one of those things that we don't always... Not a, How many of you like history? How many of you like reading about history? Oh, we actually have quite a few history lovers in here. Okay. Some people don't appreciate it. In fact, I, I'm strongly of the opinion they teach history to kids when they're going through junior high and into high school. And a lot of times it's wasted on them because the kids are just there to finish the test and they, they don't see any value in what they're learning. And I don't care how great of a teacher you have, they have a tough time trying to impart the importance of history. In fact, you might find this very interesting to know, but you know the United States is one of the few developed nations in the world that teaches history as part of its education program? Do you know most developed nations do not focus on history because they find it a waste of time? They want their kids to learn to read and write, and they want their kids to do math and science. And they think art and history and music and all of that is a waste of an education. That's the way they look at it. But there is an importance of history, and actually the Bible places a big importance on history, doesn't it? It does place a big In fact, a lot of the Old Testament is history. Now, let me ask you a question. Well, it's all well from our point of view, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's right. It, in fact, most of it was being written. It was history at that time. Yeah, they were writing it after the fact. So the prophecy is, as some people put it, it's history pre-written, the, the way some people look at it. Our Gospels. When were our Gospels written, the four Gospels? Yeah, what was it? I mean, were they, were they all written during the, were they written during the Old Testament? They were written during the New Testament. In fact, let, let's just use our terminology. Were they written during the time of the dispensation of grace? They were. So were they for the people that lived under law? No. No, they weren't for the. Here's another question. Were they written for the people that are going to live out in the future in the kingdom? I don't know that they are. I don't know that those people out in the kingdom are going to be picking up a Bible going, oh, what did Jesus say I'm supposed to do out here in the kingdom? The book of Jeremiah tells us that, that knowledge will be disseminated from, from the New Jerusalem. So I don't know that they're going to be picking up their Bible. Can you use a, different a different word. The knowledge is going to be, the people are going to be taught truth from the New Jerusalem, from, from that, that point of view. So who are the four Gospels for then? This is a tricky question because I know the way I would have answered this a long time ago. It's for Ben's right. It's for us. The, go, the four Gospels are for us. Now let me ask a question. When we say they're for us, does that mean they're to govern our practice? No. 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 Are there things in the Gospels that do govern our practice? Yeah. Yes, there are some things in there. The Gospel of John gives us chapters 13 through 17 that really is about us. In fact, there's a lot of things in the Gospel of John that really are things from the life of Christ that are relative to where we live. That's John. Is that true in other Gospels? Matthew 16 tells us, Christ says, upon this rock, I will build my church. So he's talking about when the church started. That's something very practical for us. You know why that's very practical? Because there are the, the bulk of evangelical Christianity thinks that the church started in the Garden of Eden. And that the church is just always the people of God all through history. But it's in Matthew that we find when the church began. So, yeah, there's some things like this that we can take from the Gospels. But most of the Gospels are history. 
and their history about, about Jesus talking about the kingdom. And why is that important for us? Well, we're going to get to that before we're done today. Next question. How many Gospels do we have? One of, somebody under the age of 20 answer this question. How many Gospels do we have? And by Gospels, I don't mean what we've talked about there. How many Gospels do we have? That's a trick question. It, it's not a trick question. We're going to go with just the way people understand it. How many books of the Gospels do we have? We have four. See, Kenya's under 20. Kenya can answer that question. We have, we have four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, in reality, let's, let's be clear on this, only one of those Gospels actually has in its introduction that it is about a Gospel. Matthew does not say that. Luke does not say that. And John does not say that. Only Mark says the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to wait till next week for us to go over what that's about. Because what I intend to do over the coming weeks, and we're going to have one week out in here, because we're going to have the Christmas program, that we're going to go through these four Gospels, and we're going to look at why we have these four, and very briefly, kind of a aerial view, flying over almost not in a slow little light plane, but in a, but in a jet flying over that fast, kind of what these Gospels are about in one aspect of what you take away from these. Now, why do we have four? You ever asked yourself that question? Yeah, that's it. That's the easy answer. That's easy. But have you ever wondered, why did God, God not give us just one compendious single gospel that just has all the details we need? Just Use a different word. One big gospel. <laughs> why didn't God just give us one big gospel and everything? And a lot of people have done that. In fact, you go back even into the the third century of the church, and there were people in the third century that were taking the four Gospels and collating, putting all the pieces together so that the Gospel, so that you just had one continuous Gospel rather than four. Now, it's not saying that they didn't want four, but they were just trying to put it all together in one continuous story. And you can still do that. In fact, I think in the back closet there, we had one that was written by a man. I think it's called The Life of Christ in Stereo something like that, but it was it was all the Gospels put together. And I don't know why he said stereo, because wouldn't that be quadraphonic, not stereo? But anyway, quadraphonic, that's old, that's old terminology. I don't know if anybody uses that anymore. Nobody. <laughs> I still like the word. I think it's cool. Hey, my, my friend had this incredible stereo system I would never have spent money on in his car, and you can listen to this one song where the sound went over here and went, went all the way around you on this side and then it came all the way back and you're just like wow I'm still not going to spend that much money on this stereo but I was always impressed by that I get in the car hey play that song you know I always figure when you have newborns you need to talk to them like they're an adult you need to talk to them like an adult my, my first conversation with my daughter, Katie, was, you are better than the animals because God gave you an opposable thumb. Let's talk about all the things you can do with that. Seriously, that was my first conversation with my daughter. And said, is he talking about opposable thumbs? said, yes, he is. Anyway, OK. Back to our Bible study. Back to our Bible study now. So why would we have four? Here's another question. Did you, did you and I get ripped off? I mean, we only got four. Are there other Gospels that we should have had? Did you know that there are a lot of people in the world out there, not Christians, but people in the world, that think there were better Gospels than the four that we have? And, and I don't know how many of you guys even remember Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, real popular, rock the Christian world. You know, I don't know of any real Christians that were rocked by Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. There were a lot of unsaved people that were like, Oh, I knew there was something fishy about this book. And Dan Brown, writing a work of fiction, told me so. <laughs> and there have been all kinds of evangelical Christians that just blew massive holes through Dan Brown's research and the claims that he made. Because the thing is, in the first three centuries of the church, the church never once ever considered any of those other Gospels as even possibly true. 
They all looked at them almost from the get-go, that they were wrong. And from the beginning of the church, they recognized the four Gospels we have as legitimate. So, I'm going I'm, I'm to go through some I, material. I can't remember exactly. I wouldn't say this all right, so I put this out here. Did you know, as we already said, Mark's the only one that uses the word gospel. Okay? Yep. All, Mark. Mark is the only one that, that actually at the introduction uses the term gospel uh, at the beginning. Now, the others have the word gospel in their book, in their writing, but Mark's the only one that has it close to the t to beginning Okay, in this. When others attempted, oh, here's, here's the second point. Which gospel writer, which of the four gospel writers named himself in the letter saying, I'm the author of this book? Which one? Luke. Nope. 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 What? None of them. None of them did. That was a trick question. None of them named themselves. They were all anonymous as writing. But you know what? This is interesting. All other Gospels that pretended to be Gospels that wanted to replace these four or be a contender, they always gave a name. And it was never their name. It's, I'm Tim, and let's see. Well, we've got Matthew. What other Gospel? Uh, let's, let's write the Gospel of, of Peter. So we, have the, so we have the Gospel of Peter. And we say, I'm Peter, and I'm writing a gospel. So, I'm somebody else writing a gospel. But no, but they would say, I'm Peter. See, they would, so they would falsely name themselves. But you know what the church said? Wait a second. Um, this gospel showed up just now, and Peter died 45 or 50 years ago. This isn't Peter's gospel. He's not around to write a gospel. And they knew that from the get-go. They're like, this is, I'm going to read through this. Nope, this isn't right, number one. And number two, the guy, it, it's not Peter. He's not around. And that happened with many of those gospels, that they were people pretending to be the disciples. And yet the disciples were gone when those gospels appeared. So none of them have those names attached, but they tried to present themselves in this way. Almost, almost, all the, the only people that rejected the four Gospels we have were heretics. They were the only ones that, that did. The church accepted these from the get-go. So I'm going to read just from two guys. First guy is by the name of Papias. Papias lived from AD 60 to about 130. He's a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of John. John that wrote John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. So Papias is his disciple, his student. We only have fragments of Papias. And by fragments, I mean really small, short pieces of his stuff. Most of it, well, all his stuff is gone. Even though they, they know about stuff, we know that's from another historian from the 4th century. This is what Papias said. Papias said that John the Presbyter, that would be the writer of John, he said, Mark was the interpreter of Peter. Whatsoever he recorded, he wrote with great accuracy, but not however, this is very important, not in the order that it was spoken or done by the Lord. So he says Mark was not written chronological. This is what Papias says. For he neither heard nor followed our Lord, but as before said, he was in company with Peter, who gave him such instruction as was necessary, but not to give a history of our Lord's discourses. So Matthew, or Mark, excuse me, doesn't have the long discourses that you have recorded in uh, the other Gospels. That's the Gospel of Mark. And on Matthew, Papias wrote, Matthew composed his history in the Hebrew dialect, and everyone translated as, as he was able. So initially, Matthew first writes Matthew in Hebrew, and everybody goes, that's not right. They spoke Aramaic. This is actually a real challenge to the whole idea that these guys all spoke Aramaic in the first century. In fact, there's a teacher, a professor down at the Master's Seminary down in Southern California that actually has researched that there's certain sayings and things that Jesus said that if it was said in Aramaic would not have the impact that it would have if he spoke it in Hebrew. And the Greek brings the impact out. And so they, they are challenging the notion that these people were all speaking Aramaic at that time and not Hebrew. That's Papias. That's Papias. Papias tells us that, that John wrote a gospel, uh, that Mark wrote a gospel, that Matthew wrote. He also says of, of Luke, but I, it, it just that Luke wrote something. That's all we have. 
Irenaeus, Irenaeus is actually a pretty interesting guy to read. He, he actually has a lot of writings that, are, that we have still around today. Irenaeus lived from about 130, so he dies the year that Papias, or he's born the year Papias uh, dies, and he lives until 202. He wrote that Matthew issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. So he's doing that while those guys are preaching, is what he's saying. And after their death, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what has been preached by Peter. That's going to be important when we get to the book of Mark and look at that. Luke, also a companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who, also, who had leaned upon his breast, that's from the book of John, kind of connects it, he did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. And we do know that John was in Ephesus. We know that uh, from uh, the book, uh, book of Revelation. Well, he'd been on Patmos. Yeah, I mean, church history tells us otherwise. So we have these four gospels. Now, here's a, here, you know, let's humor me a little bit. Why do we have four? Well, let's take Irenaeus. Irenaeus says we have to have four because we have four compass points and we have four winds. Uh, unless you live in Royal City, then the wind comes from whatever direction it wants. Uh, Irenaeus also said that we had in the Old Testament and also in the book of Revelation, a cherub that had cherubs that had four faces. And each one of those faces then represented uh, one of these aspects. He said, lion represents the leadership and royal power. And he says this, now I would take that to Matthew, but Irenaeus said, that's the gospel of John. Christ as the word and is full, uh, it was full of all confidence. The calf pictures Christ as the sacrifice. He applies that to Luke as the sacrificial calf because they, they looked at Luke, the early church looked at Luke as a priestly book. And isn't it interesting? Who's one of the first people you meet in the book of Luke? John the Baptist's father, who is a priest. And where, what do you have happening in the book of Luke? You have the, his parents taking Jesus up to the temple, and you have Jesus at the temple at 12. So there are some interesting things on that. Uh, I'm just, to me, it's, I'm not saying I, I'm adopting these. I'm just showing you how they do this. Um, they said the man pictures Christ in his advent as a human being, and that's Matthew. They say that that's actually Matthew, and he claims that Matthew is, is the gospel of his humanity. A lot of times people take Luke that way. And then the flying eagle refers to the gift of the Spirit hovering with his wings over the church. And that's the book of Mark, the prophetic spirit coming down on high. Uh, that one I don't quite follow. I'm just telling you, this is the way the, this guy handled it. Now, Lewis Talbot in 1944, who had a radio ministry and everything during the war, he's, he took the four faces, but he said the lion is Matthew, the ox is Christ as the servant, uh, Christ as the man is presented in the book of Luke, and Christ as the eagle is John, the word of God. I'm just telling you, this is the way these people went. Why do we have four? What was the answer you gave, Faith? God wanted it that way. God is giving us not a stereo vision view of the Christ, but a four-sided, four-perspective view on the earthly ministry of Christ. And yeah, each gospel does have its emphases. And we're going to touch on some of these today. So, first of all, modern scholarship almost all uniformly agrees Mark's the first gospel. And I think they're wrong. Mark is not the first. And that actually was built, that started in the 1700s, and it's built on an evolutionary theory of, of, of uh, literature that says you start with a small, simple gospel and you add details to it. So you start simple. And, uh, but the early church never took it that way. The early church always thought Matthew and Luke were the first two. Mark was later. John's the last one. But, but scholarship almost uniformly goes with the book of Mark today. You just need to know that. And that's evangelical scholarship. You go to most evangelical seminaries and such, that's the way they present this information. Although I did notice it's interesting down in, uh, I can't think what seminary it is. It's one of the Southern Baptist Seminary. They were pre President Danny Aiken. He actually... What? What you said about the timeline. Oh, the timeline? Yeah, the timeline of those written. It, um, Matthew and Luke are first. Matthew's probably the first one, written early in the church, probably either before Acts 15 or shortly after. 
Luke Luke can't Luke can't write until he actually goes down to Judea with Paul, which he does in Acts 21. And so Luke comes sometime after that. Mark, according to Papias, writes after the death of Peter. And Peter dies in 67. So Peter's the third of those Gospels written, and then John. I believe that's the order that those four Gospels are written. Uh, in, in the Ryrie Study Bible, they have Matthew and Mark as 50 or 60s, more, a lot more general. Mm -hmm. And then Luke is 60, and John as 85 and 90. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very familiar with the way they look at that. I, I still think Mark's written later, because Papias and Irenaeus both say that Mark writes after the death of Peter. He was compiling and showing these, but he doesn't publish it until after the death of Peter. The thing is, we don't know. None of them actually give us a date. We can date Luke, because Luke researches his gospel, and we know when Luke travels. Did you know we know when Luke travels with Paul to, to Judea? You know How do we know that Luke travels with Paul to Judea? How do we know that? Because we have a we. When you're reading the book of Acts, it goes from talking about he and they to we. And then when they get to Judea down there, then it talks about Paul, because Luke is not involved in all of everything that happens with Paul being caught up at the temple and arrested and put in prison. But when they get on the ship to go back or to go to Rome, to send Paul to Rome as a prisoner, Luke goes with them because he says, we embarked. <laughs> and he travels with him, which is exactly what the scriptures tell us elsewhere. So we know where Luke, what we know when Luke actually was down there. And we even know when Luke joined Paul's group in the first place. He joins Paul and them just before they go to Philippi in Acts 16. So, anyway. So, Matthew's written probably really close to 50 AD and so on and so forth. And let me turn my page and let's get on to Matthew. Let's look at Matthew in the little bit of time that we have left. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. You were expecting to go to Matthew when I tell you to go to Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. And this is, this is one of the covenants that God makes to Abraham. And in Genesis 17 and verse 16, he says, I will bless her. This is talking about Sarah. And indeed, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall be the one from which nations will come. Kings of people shall come from her. So he's promising kings. Or he doesn't say a king, kings, plural. But he's promising this to Abraham at this juncture. We have this again repeated in Genesis uh, chapter 35, we're not going to go over there to Genesis 35. I want you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the Davidic covenant. This is the covenant that God makes with David after he takes the throne. And he says in verse 12, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, follow along, when your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up of your descendants after you, one who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Now everybody goes, oh, he's talking about Solomon. Well, just wait. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever or for an age. That's not Solomon. That's Christ. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he, oh, here's, see, this is the one that catches us, when he commits iniquity. Christ, did Christ ever commit iniquity or perversity? No. But in the Hebrew, this is a hyphial verb, and a hyphial verb is a causative verb. When he is caused to commit, commit perversity, when was Christ caused to commit a perversity? For three hours, when he hung on the cross at the end of the day, and the Father counted Christ to be the perverse sinner that we are. For three hours, he imputed our sinfulness to Christ for those three hours. It's one of these statements that a lot of people do not understand when they read this. They think that has to be Solomon. 
But he's referring to Christ here. I will correct him with the rod of man. Isn't that what Isaiah 53 says? He, it's by his stripes, by the rods of men. It's by his stripes, he says, that we're healed. And he says, in the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not befar, be, depart from him as I took it from Saul when I removed, when I removed, whom I removed, I'm sorry, the light up here is really dim and I'm having problems seeing. Whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So this is the promise that God is making of one that's going to sit on David's throne. It's going to have a kingdom that is going to last in this indefinite period of time, at least for an, out into an age. And this one that is actually going to essentially bear our sins is what he's referring to. Now with that, then, turn over to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1. And some of this is, for those of you that were in Jim's class this morning, uh, missed out on some good stuff if you weren't in Jim's class. But if you were in Jim's class this morning, we're, you're going to get a little bit of this second uh, repeated. But here in uh, Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy. It tells us in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Notice it says, son of David, son of Abraham. Now, why does it pick those two guys out of this list? Because Abraham's the first one that God makes a promise about this seed and this promise about one that's going to be kings. They're going to be kings. But David, specifically, the promise of a king that's going to sit on his throne. So he's taking this back through time, going back to all of these things, picking this out. And he tells us then in verse, let's go to verse 16. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom, that is by Mary, was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Christ is Christ is not, is, to me, Christ is not really, I, I'm not, we're not going to change terminology today. But Christ doesn't mean anything to anybody because nobody knows what it means. If you were going to translate the title Christ, what, how would you translate it? Anointed one, because that's what it meant. Then you have to say, well, what, did it, what was significant about an anointed one? There were two people in the Old Testament that were anointed. What were those two people? Two different kinds of people that were anointed. Who? Kings and priests, and Jesus Christ is both. <laughs> he is both king and priest, and he's the anointed one. Now, this is going to emphasize him being king. So if you look in chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born... King of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Look at this. These are Gentiles, Gentile astrologers that have come from the east. From Babylon? We don't know. From Persia? We don't know. But they've come from the east. The reason we always say Bab Babylon and Persia is because Israel <coughs> spent time in both places. Okay, the Babylonian captivity, and some of them ended up spending time actually over in Persia after the Persians conquered Babylon. And so we have this background that maybe that's where these people picked up this information. And maybe God just gave them revelation. We really have no idea how they came to know that there was a king that was born over here and that this was his star that they saw in the east. But they're coming to see this one who is the king. So when Jesus begins his earthly ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, we go to chapter 4, and we come to verse 17, and it tells us in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, let's give a good modern translation for the word repent. Change your mind, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. See, most of these people had given up hope of this kingdom. Most of these people were like, it's not going to happen. And they're just going on their merry way. And the, in fact, the Gospels indicate, you know what happens if you gave up hope that, that the king was actually going to show up and set up the kingdom? 
You've got an example of this that in a parable that Jesus tells over in uh, Matthew 25. You start beating your fellow slaves and mistreating them because you say, my Lord delays his coming. <laughs> in other words, he's not coming back. So I'm just going to mistreat all these other fellow slaves of mine, he says over in Matthew 25. And so some of these people were living this way. In fact, I'm confident this is why these people listening to John were confessing out their sins as they were being baptized because giving up hope that the kingdom was really coming caused them to live in sin. Why? I'm not going to answer to God because the kingdom's not showing up. And both John and Jesus come along and say the kingdom is at hand. Some of your Bibles, modern translations, translate it near, and I've told you this before. The Hebrew word at goose, can mean, it means near, but literally, you know what it meant? It meant at arm's length. It's, my, it's like my coffee over here. I can just reach over and pick it up. It's that close. I don't have to get up and walk into my office to get it. That's literally what that, that's why our King James translated it at hand, and it comes down to us here in the New American Standard that I have, because you could just reach out and take it. And the point was, the kingdom's that close. The kingdom is that close, people. You need to change your mind. It is not some distant thing out there and 250 generations are going to have to pass before you're ever going to see this. It's that close because Jesus Christ was right there. And this is his kingdom. And so as a result of this, it tells us as he's preaching this message, if you look down here in verse 23, it says, and Jesus was going about in all of Galilee. Galilee, you know, is up to the north of the area of Jerusalem. It's up. Jesus was kind of up from that region up there where Nazareth was, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. By the way, for the kids, Karis, do you know what a synagogue was? Okay. Synagogue is like a church. It's, it's a, simply a word meaning a place where people gather. In fact, what does the word church mean? A gathering. And a synagogue meant a gathering of Jewish people. Soon ago to gather together is literally what that synagogue is. It's a Greek word. It's just simply a, it's an English pronunciation of a Greek word. It was a place they came together. So I'm just trying to make sure we all understand we're talking about a synagogue. We're talking about a place where these Jewish people were getting together. And he says here, he was in all of their synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. But that proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, what is that What is that gospel of the kingdom? Is he just going to repent the kingdom from the heavens and hand? Repent for the kingdoms of heaven and hand? Is that what he's doing? You want an example of the gospel of the kingdom? You read chapters 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount is one literal, real example of of that gospel of the kingdom. If you want to know what it, Jesus, what it looked like when Jesus was telling these people about the gospel of the kingdom, that's one example. And Matthew pulls it. Jesus preached that same message many times. And I've heard Josh preach some of the same things more than once. It's never exactly the same. Because every time you come to it, every time, and you've probably heard me, hey, I've, if I've been here almost 30 years and I'm sure some of you are going, yeah, we've heard you talk on this topic before, Tim, like 10 times. <laughs> but is it every time, is it identical? If you recorded it, probably isn't. And so every time Jesus gets up, does he always utter exactly the same identical words? No. But is it the same outline? Is it the same message about the kingdom? Yes. It's the same information they needed to know. And so the Sermon on the Mount is really good because it shows us what this kingdom message looked like that Jesus was proclaiming to these people. Now, one other very interesting detail, and I, and I don't know if you guys remember this, but when I was reading those, those details there, Irenaeus, this man in the, at the, in the second century, he believed that Matthew was the gospel of Jesus' humanity. Now, one of the interesting things about that is, is that in the Gospel of Matthew, we have the expression, Son of Man. Son of Man. In the Gospel of Matthew, and by the way, of the, of the four books, which is the biggest book? Does anybody just want to take a shot? Which of the four Gospels is the biggest? Word-wise, number of words. It's Luke. Luke. Luke is, if I remember correctly, like almost two or three hundred words more than the Gospel of Matthew. So it's Luke, Matthew, John, and, and uh, Mark. 
in that order. And I did, did this because I was doing word tallies. I was going through tons of words. I've got sheets and sheets where I was doing word tallies, looking for, trying to find themes, things that were unique to each gospel. Son of Man in the book of Matthew occurs 30 times in this book. Mark uses it 15 times, half as often. Luke uses it 24, so he's kind of close to Matthew if you take into account that his book is bigger. And John 12, actually, no, that means it's a little less because his book is bigger. And John only 12 times. Now, what is the significance of the title Son of Man? Do you know where you go to find the title Son of Man to understand it? Daniel 7. Thank you, Josh. So let's go to Daniel chapter 7. Oh. See, see, doing those papers are good because sometimes you have to work on it. You remember stuff. I always tell people, there's an aspect on, on the doctrine of God the Son. I do not forget and I keep it straight because when I did my final, my final orals, I blew that point. And man, I'm telling you, I had one of my professors that was like just, hmm, boy, you do that. You are totally destroying the whole concept of who God the Son is. <laughs> but you know what? I've always remembered that. I've always remembered that from that mistake I made. Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has seen a vision of these four beasts. These four beasts are four kingdoms. And uh, if you look in verse 13... When he's looking at these four future kingdoms, and those kingdoms, by the way, are uh, has to do with Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, and then finally the 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 Roman kingdom. So they're each representing this. But if we look down here in verse thirteen, I kept looking. This is Daniel. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now, why would he say one like a son of man? What would that mean? What do you mean he's one that he's he's like a son of man? He looks Yeah, he looks human. It looks like a human being. You know, Ezekiel got to see a vision of of deity of God in Ezekiel 1. It's kind of very vaguely human in form, but it's all metallic. It's got a body that looks like it's metal, and it looks like metal that's glowing and on fire. I have never seen a person that looks like they're glowing metal on fire except in comic books, okay? In other words, it's not a thing you see. But this one, he looks up and he goes, oh, this one looks like a son of man. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. Now, who's the Ancient of Days in this context then? God the Father. This is kind of what, what Jim was getting at a little bit in his class, making these distinctions in the persons of the Godhead, something that I agree. Christians are sometimes pretty sloppy with paying attention to distinctions in these persons. And it says, And he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages might serve him. Notice, all, not a small portion, all. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. If you didn't get everlasting from the first phrase, then the second one should help you. It doesn't pass away. It doesn't end. And his kingdom is one kingdom. You know why that's important? Because it's not like the earthly kingdoms that are always divided and broken up. You, by the way, you have a similar kind of picture back over in Daniel 2, where there's that big giant colossus image in the toes, and then there's a rock that is not carved by hands. See, it's divine that comes out of the rock, and it crushes and destroys and obliterates all that earthly kingdom, all those, all that image that Nebuchadnezzar's seen, obliterates it down to there's nothing but dust when it's done. It grinds everything to dust. That's the kingdom of God the Son. That's God the Son as this king. And it says, and it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will never or will not be destroyed. In other words, like, unlike those earthly kingdoms, it's never going to be ground to dust. It doesn't end. By the way, John the Baptist's father utters this statement over in Luke 1, when he says, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So the thousand years is not the son's kingdom. 
that's one facet of the Son's kingdom. The Son's kingdom is going to keep on going out into eternity. That's just a facet of a kingdom in which there are some people that have been raised that get to reign with him. Not, that's not even us at that time. So here's the Son of Man. Now let's go over, keep this in mind. Let, let, let's put this together. Number one, he receives a dominion, authority. He has glory. He has a reputation. He's able to be seen in this glory before people. And he has a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that is how extensive? How many people are under this kingdom? All. Secondly, how long is it? How extensive is it in time? It doesn't end. So let's take that information and let's go over to the book of Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And, and uh, the significance of all this is if, if you go back to, let's go back up to verse 1, Matthew 24, verse 1. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings with him. And he answered and said, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, there is not one stone here that should be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Well, tell us, when will these things be? Number one. Number two, what is the sign of your coming? And number three, and what is the end of the age? They've got three questions, three questions that they've asked him. I hope you understand that. So he's going to be addressing these three questions. And one of the things, and I still, uh, well, let's go to verse. He warns them about false Christs. This is not a thing you and I have to worry about. But out there, in, out there during Daniel's 70th week, they're going to have to be worried because they're going to have false Christs that are going to come down and they're going to try to deceive people. And it's always going to be, it's secret. It's secret. You've got to secretly come over here because he's in this inner room of this house or he's out in this desert place. So we've got to go out and find him in the secret place. But notice what Jesus says. Verse 26, If therefore they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go forth. Behold, if he's in that inner room, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the, from the west. And I still remember teaching a Bible study down at the Nelsons and Stan going, Wait a second. Lightning doesn't travel east to west. It travels east to west. West to east, north to south, south to east, and every other point on the compass. And I was like, hmm, that's very true. Why is he making a reference here from east to west? Because where does our sun come from? It looks as it comes out of the east and travels to the west because the earth does this. And when God the sun is coming in, his, in, in this coming, as the earth spins, and there are, by the way, no stars all the stars, the sun and the moon are all dark. There is absolutely no competing light. Not that they wouldn't see it anyway, because remember when Jesus showed up to Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul described it as brighter than the noonday sun. So with all the heavenly lights out, the only thing that they're going to be able to see is the light of God the Son coming from the New Jerusalem, coming to earth, and as the earth spins, it's going to appear as though it's going from east to west. I've thanked Stan many times for pointing that out because it just fits so well what Jesus is getting at. And his point, and this is and, and, and Stan pointing this out, the thing that was helpful for me is that's exactly Jesus' point. The coming is not going to be secret. The coming is going to be so vivid, so bright, so intense that everybody on the surface of the earth, they're all going to be able to see this. It's not going to be a secret coming where he's out in the wilderness or in a room. Everybody's going to know he's coming. And lightning's a lot brighter than the sun. Lightning is pretty intense, yeah. You ever seen it lightning in the midday when you got a cloud over here and it bolts across here? And, and yes. But, and the other thing that goes along with this is there's going to be two responses to the coming of the sun. It doesn't say it here. There's going to be those that are going to mourn and weep over him because they're going to recognize their responsibility for why he died and was rejected. And there are those that are going to be saying, Come on! We are taking him on! And if you want to know what that looks like, you just got to go buy the 1996 movie Independence Day with Will Smith. I, <laughs> I still remember watching that for the first time, but I told Peg, I said, oh, this is the way the world will be when the New Jerusalem comes down. We're going to fight against the aliens that are invading our planet. Well, 
Isn't that the way the world's going to look at God coming to this world? He's an alien. We're going to take him out and keep him from invading our planet. They're not going to be able to succeed. Independence Day, that's science fiction, but I just always thought that was funny. But it says, it says, For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So the, so the Son of Man, in other words, when that one that's coming to take the kingdom that Daniel told us about, when he comes, everybody's going to see him when he's approaching, when he's coming to this world. Look in verse 37. And this is the other thing that goes along with it. It says in verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Son, but the Father alone. In other words, in the realm of his human nature, God the Son doesn't, no, when he's going to return. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, and they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, they're carrying on with life at, well, let's put it this way, as best as you can in the midst of the tribulation period, or the Daniel 7 of the week. But they're carrying on life. They're not expecting judgment to come. They're actually expecting that life's going to go on. That's what they're thinking. But it says very clearly here, as it will, in the, for the coming of the Son of Man will be like those days. Unexpected. It's not a thing that they're expecting and looking for. What? Even with all that death, all that death they're still, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? And I will say this. I, I will say this, though, about, about this thing. You know, if, if this COVID-19 thing went on and it went all the way through 2021, you know what would happen? Most people would say, I'm done with this. No more masks, no more social distancing. I don't care what the government, because most people get fed up with it. What happens when you, when people live under a situation bad enough for a while, they just pick up and pretty soon they're just like, we're just going to carry on with life. Do you know that that happened in, back in the 30s and in, in the very early 40s in London during the Blitzkrieg? They're being bombed out. Pretty soon they're like, we can't just hide out all the time from those German bombs. We're carrying on a lot. And you know, even when the Allies were going on and we were starting bombing raids into Berlin, the people in Berlin tried to do the same thing. Carry on with life every day. Get on their bicycles. Go out and sit in coffee shops and all this kind of stuff. This is what people do at a certain point. They just get tired of hunkering down. And I think the things, the same thing's going to happen even out there. I mean, I always think it's crazy. Towards the end of Daniel's 70th week, the beast is allowed to kill the two prophets? And what do the people on the earth do? Yeah, they celebrate and they send presents to each other. Can you imagine that hardship of life, how horrible it's going to be, that they're going to actually be sending gifts to each other? Anyway, yeah. So Ben's, Ben's comment is really good to think about people become callous. People become eventually callous to this kind of stuff going on. Back to the main point, go to verse 39 here. And it says, And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. So we have this idea of the Son of Man coming, and this and those are three times, but the Son of Man occurs, like I said, 30 times in the gospel or in the gospel of Matthew. Because it's referring to this one who is coming to be king. And if you would have said that among the Jews, they all would have known what you were talking about. You and I, we're like, you know. Unless you're Joshua goes, oh, that's Daniel 7. Most of us are going to go in, son of man, son of man, where's that freight? But see, the Jews knew that. They knew that that actually, that was talking about the ruler. Because he was going to rule in the realm of a human nature. But he is at the very same time divine. Okay. In this regard. Now, we have a kingdom promise. Let's... Uh, I've got four more verses I want to hit. Turn with me to Matthew 8. So just if you can hold on a little bit longer. You're being good students today. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. This is after the healing of the centurion. The centurion is Jew or Gentile? Gentile. Okay. And he's the one that he has his servant, wants Jesus to come heal the servant, but he's eventually sends his servants, goes, don't show up at my house. I'm not worthy that you should even come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus' response in verse, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Now, to put marvel in modern English, he was amazed. We all get that. Jesus is amazed. 
and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. In other words, this is a Gentile military leader, and he's demonstrating greater faith than I've seen any of you people demonstrate. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying, isn't he? Verse 11, and I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom belonging to the heavens. But the sons of the kingdom, that is, those that were supposed to get the kingdom, the ones that were originally supposed to get it, meaning those people that Jesus has been talking to, they shall be cast into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the weeping and gnashing of teeth is associated with outer darkness, and it's associated not with being excluded from the kingdom until the kingdom's done, and then you get in, which there are people that teach that today. It's talking about people that are cast in the lake of fire, and we know that because if you keep reading Matthew, you find Jesus clearly saying it's the lake of fire, and he tells us that. They understood that. But we've got people, dispensationalists even today like us, that are trying to say, if you're not a good Christian, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. You're going to be cast into outer darkness. That's teaching that your future tense salvation is works-based, and it is not. It's still by grace. And this, he's talking here about those people that didn't believe in him, and so they are not going to participate in that kingdom. But notice, the kingdom involves Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they all received promise of that kingdom. Now, here's one of the places where the book of Matthew is important for us because it's showing you that this Jesus is the fulfillment of this son of man that Daniel prophesied, and he's the one that's bringing the kingdom that is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you were, who made up most of the church by the time the first century was over? Gentiles. By the time the first century is over, the church has become predominantly Gentiles. What, what do most of you carry within a Bible that most of those Gentiles didn't have? Well, you didn't have a Bible, for one thing, but an Old Testament. Those Gentiles didn't understand the Old Testament. They didn't know what the, about this Old Testament. They had listened to Paul and Peter proclaim these things, but they didn't have an Old Testament. The Old Testament was in Hebrew. And people go, well, they had a Septuagint. Do you know, do you know what books actually were made up the Jewish Septuagint at the time of Jesus? <laughs> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses. Those were the only books translated into Greek. I always was the impression they had the whole Old Testament. Do you know who translated the rest of the Old Testament into Greek? F.F. Bruce, a British Bible scholar, tell you. It was the Christians. The Christians were the ones that started finishing translating the rest of the Old Testament into Greek because they wanted the scriptures in a tongue they could read because they didn't read Hebrew. So they wanted it translated into Greek, and they started doing that. Now, why is that all a big deal? It's a big deal because you and I pick up the Bible, and we've got that Old Testament, and we read this stuff. If you were a first century Jew, you'd be going, okay, this, you're telling me about this Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus Christ? Well, he was God, become man. Where do you get that from? So they'd have to explain that to them. And they said, well, he was somebody, why did they kill him? What did he do? He must have been a criminal. No, he wasn't. He was there. Well, why did they kill him? I don't, why would you kill an innocent man? I don't get that. You ever thought about the, those things? For them explaining? Did he, did he volunteer and say, please put me up on a cross so I can die for the sins of the whole world? Is that what Jesus did? No. He died, those people, considering him to be a sinner. Isaiah 53 tells us that. That's the way they looked at him. And so when you come to these texts like this, it's taking and it's connecting who this Jesus is with things from the Old Testament to tell them, you know what, God has not written that off and God is still in the process of dealing with those promises from the Old Testament and they're being fulfilled. And it's one of the things that I think the church has messed up on through most of its history that we think it's all about us. And God's done with those people Israel because they were way stupider than we were. We accepted Jesus. They rejected him. And in reality, that's exactly kind of what Paul gets after Gentiles for in the book of, in the book of Romans in chapter 11. Okay. So, let's go to chapter 22. Matthew 22. It's connecting that promise. See, it's connecting that promise with Jesus connected with that kingdom, connected with the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Matthew 22, verse 42. 
<clears throat> Let's go to verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? Who's this, this is anointed one? And they all said, A David's. Now, they were right in that sense. They, they were saying. And he said to them, How then does David, by the Spirit, call him Lord? For the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Do you realize th this had to be kind of a shock to these guys to stop and have Jesus confront them with this about Christ, that if he's supposed to be David's son at the same time, David looks at him and says, he's my Lord. And the Lord, Jehovah, says then to my Lord. How does David have a Lord? If Because uh, it's putting you in a position where he has to force them to say, this one is God. And in some way, they have to recognize in some way that he's equal with this other one that they knew as Lord or at, uh, Jehovah. And then he says, if David then, verse 45, calls him Lord, how is he a son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. So again, as he's looking at, the, at him in this context, he's tying Christ to who he is as the son of David, which again goes back to the genealogy in chapter 1, son of Abraham, son of David. In this regard, very important. We have turned to chapter 25 in Matthew. I like that in verse 40. They didn't dare to ask him and ask his ask is an equal. They realized they were inferior. Yeah, which I which is interesting because it doesn't say that here in in, in Matthew, but it does in Luke. They were kind of they were kind of caught in the same position when he was 12 years old, <laughs> talking with them. Thank you, Josh. Turn to Matthew chapter 25, and I want you in Matthew 25 to go down to verse 31. 25, verse 31. It says, And when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so again, Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is kind of goes along with Jim's class. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. He's not sitting on his throne right now. He's sitting on the Father's right hand. I've pointed this out many times to people because there's a lot of Christians left and right. In fact, there's a lot of things like, have you ever, you ever see people that go around with the title, they have t-shirts that maybe you'll say it, or they go around saying, we believe in King Jesus, King Jesus, King Jesus. I told you the, the newsboys back many years ago, Josh and Faith probably remember this because this was back kind of when they were in their high school days back then. Newsboys came up with a song called Amazing Love. I think that's what it's called. It's a nice song. I really like it, except they took John Wesley's words where he says, that thou my God should die for me, and they changed it to thou my king. And it just, every time, I love that song until they get to that line, and it's just like, why? Why? I think it's because there's a lot of Christians today, or at least people that pretend to be Christians, that like pop Christian music that don't want to be told Jesus is God. It's, it's an irritant to them. It's offensive. But if you say Jesus is king, they're like, oh, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, that's just my guess. That, I, that goes with the idea that make him the Lord of your life, give him the throne of your heart. That's right. the fulfillment of, yes, a, a throne that will never end. See, they make it metaphorical instead of literal. As though, it, as though he hasn't yet come and sat on his throne, and yet this is very plain. If you read through this, this hasn't happened. Has he judged the sheep and the goats yet? Has he? No, he hasn't done this judgment yet. This is a future judgment that is yet to come, and it happens when he comes and when he sits on his throne. So he's not doing this now. But he is going to do it, and he is going to sit on his throne at that time. And then, the last thing, turn with me to chapter 27. And we could do this. Uh, we could spend a whole morning just looking at the way Israel rejects Jesus Christ as recorded in the book of Matthew. It starts back as, uh, as early as about Matthew 11. You can start seeing this rejection starting to crop up. But in 27 and uh, verse 11, this is after Jesus has been betrayed. He's before Pilate and it says, Jesus stood before the governor. The governor questioned, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, as you say... In other words, he doesn't say, no, no, you got it all wrong. He goes, as you say, or you said it, that's right. We do that. 
I don't know, people, people may not use that expression today, but when I was a teenager, somebody would say something in your agreement, you'd be going, you said it! And we weren't saying, well, you said that, but I don't agree. You were saying, I agree with you! That's the way we, right? I, I don't, But I don't hear people use that expression quite like we used to. But Jesus does not disagree. When he's turned over then, in verse 27, when the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole cohort around him, they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. Why scarlet robe? Because they're mocking him as a king. Wove together a crown of thorns because they're mocking him as a king. Put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. See, they're, they're not accepting him. Now, these are the soldiers, not the Jews, but the soldiers aren't accepting him. This is important here because it's also showing Christ is not only being rejected by the nation Israel, but he's even being rejected by Gentiles in this regard. They're mocking him in this context. Context. Look down in verse 37. Verse 37, and it says, And they put up over his head the charge against him, which read. So this is the charge. This was the charge by which they rejected him before Pilate. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, the thing that bugged Israel the most was Jesus claiming to be God. That's the thing. But you know what? If they would have gone to Pilate and said, Hey, this guy claims to be God, Pilate would have, I got all kinds of cuckoos I have to deal with. That's no big deal to me. But for Pilate, being appointed by Caesar to rule over that area, over there in Judea, if he let slip through his fingers somebody that pretended to be king, he actually was not supporting Caesar. So that's the charge that Israel brought against him. But that was also part of their rejection. In fact, if you go down to verse, let's go to verse 41. It, well, let's go to verse 40. And saying, this is some of these people, you who are, were to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, you save yourself. If you're the son of God, which that's the title of deity. See, that's what they were, that's their first point of rejection. Come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, they were mocking him saying, he saved others. He cannot say himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. In other words, this ends, this gospel ends here with the, in the crucifixion, again, with further rejection of Jesus Christ as a king. So Matthew, I do believe, is presenting him as the son of man, because the son of man is the king, and it shows how Israel was responding. Some of them believed in the kingdom, but most of the nation of Israel rejects the kingdom, and they reject him as king. And this is what Matthew shows us. Now, I, like I said, this was a... This was, you might not have thought this was fast, but if you've ever tried to do a survey through Matthew, this was a real fast survey on a lot of details uh, with regard to who he is and what Matthew is presenting to us about who this person is. And Matthew is an important book in that regard because you're going to have Gentiles today that make up the church that need to understand this Jesus came and he really was the king, but he was rejected as the king. And rejecting him as the king, they put him on the cross, and it's that way that God caused him to become our savior by dying on the cross for our sins. And they're able to go, oh. So it's not as though they just look at them and go, oh, that, that plan in the Old Testament? Crumple it up, throw it in the trash, let's start over. No, it's not that. God, that plan is still in motion. It's just not the main thing that God's doing right now at the present time. And so the book of Matthew helps us in that way. So, we have four Gospels. All of them are important. They're recording a lot of history. They also record a lot of prophecy. But they're recording things to help you and I have a connection between where we are now and what God had done in the Old Testament and how these two are not completely disjoined. That there is a relationship between where we are and what has gone before. Not that we're living in this, but that there actually is a connection to what God has been doing. And God planned that even with regard to the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ in bringing about his plan so that Jesus Christ would become not just king for Israel, but eventually savior of the world, which we benefit from. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful for your word. And we ask as we have perhaps opportunity, not just in this Christmas season, but all throughout this year, to share the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. We realize we are 
more and more likely to encounter people that have no idea who this Jesus is. These people are sometimes are going to be not even a whole lot different than the type of people that Josh and Faye may encounter on that island. And we, are, we may be called upon to sketch out very briefly some of the history about who this person was and why it was then that he went to the cross and on that cross then died for our sins and was buried and rose again and that we have salvation, forgiveness of sins by believing in him. Help us take these things into mind, consider them, and to be those that are ready to be able to present the good news as you give us opportunity. Amen. Thank you.